This episode of the Blue Hawaii Podcast is brought to you by Homebrew in Paradise. Homebrew in Paradise. For all your homebrew needs, whether beer, wine, cider, fermented food. If you like kimchi coladas. Get on down to Homebrew in Paradise, 740 Moava Street in Kalihikai. And getting caught in the rain. Blue Hawaii. Welcome to the Blue Hawaii Podcast. I'm Josh Michaels. And I'm Ryan Little. We have an extra special treat for you today. This is going to be the first part in a two-part interview with congresswoman and hawaii gubernatorial candidate colleen hanabusa it's hanabusa time y'all so the first episode uh we recorded way back on april 6 we sat down with her in her congressional office we talked about all things policy up in dc back here uh what it's like up in congress uh hint if you're watching the news it's uh tumultuous tumultuous is a good word and then having done that interview uh there's certain limitations on what we can ask we can't ask candidates campaign-related questions in taxpayer-funded offices. So there's a lot of things we had to shy away from. And because we know that you're all going to be really interested in how the campaign is going, Congresswoman Hanabusa actually agreed to have us for a second interview. And this one will be done at the opening of her campaign headquarters tomorrow, which is, as of this recording, uh, May 6th, 2018, down in Kalihi, where we have received our first ever press credential. They put us on the list, y'all. They must not know us very no, well. No, we're fake it till you make it. I guess we've done it. Yeah. So that said, some of the things you're going to hear us talk about are not as timely as they once were. Yeah. Uh, specifically with the mentioning of the passing of the late Senator Daniel Akaka. We actually recorded her, uh, set this interview um, the day after he passed away, I believe. It was either the day after or the day of even. Yeah. I can't remember, but it was... Yeah, so it's some of that stuff. Some things you're going to hear us talk about are not necessarily timely now. They still affect everybody, and they're still worth mentioning, so mm-hmm. that's why we've left them in. Uh, but tomorrow, we're going to be asking uh, a little bit more of the hard-hitting campaign questions, the things that we know that you're really interested in. And we're also going to be asking a lot more of the listener questions that you've submitted to us. Yeah, we're excited. And after we do that, invites will be going out to all the other major governor candidates, as well as uh, our certain lieutenant governor, congressional candidates, and other folks we want to hear from, and we think you might want to hear from, too. But before we get into all of that, let's talk about the news a little bit. So to all our mainland friends and family who are frantically texting us, making sure we're out of the volcano's path, thank you for checking in. It's, that's, your thoughts and prayers are much appreciated for yes, us. We are three islands away. Three islands away. <laughs> um, the worst that's going to happen to us over here. Well, uh, four islands away, actually. Four, is a little bit of volcanic fog, or excuse me, volcanic smog, also known as VOG. VOG. Uh, if you have allergies and asthma, it's crappy. Um, but let's send a... That's the likely worst. That's the likely worst. So I saw what the real worst is, which is apparently some guy did a simulated a model yeah. and he showed that there's this portion of Kilauea called, I believe it's the western flank of Kilauea. Oh, no. I and think, okay. So it apparently moved at one point in the year 2000, 10 centimeters in one day. That doesn't seem like a lot. That's not a lot. Until you think about it, and it's actually like an island moving 10 well, centimeters in one day. The So he has this portion that he's identified yeah. as it's 300 cubic kilometers of land. That's a lot of land. And he says if it were to slough off into slough. the ocean, slough, S-L-O-U-G-H. That's a great word. If it were to slough off into the ocean... As it might do due to, say, large earthquakes, like a 7.0, 6.9 that they got that's, yesterday. That's something that happened. It would fall directly into the water and displace so much water that the ensuing tsunami would be up to 1,000 feet tall. 
Oh. So that's like the worst that could happen. Okay. Well, uh, that hasn't happened yet. Friends and listeners on the Big Island, please stay safe. Get to at least 1,001 feet. Stay indoors. Yeah. And if... If you see a 1,000-foot wall of water, it's probably too late. And if this ends up being our last episode... We love you guys. Yeah. Speaking of volcanic eruptions, Liverpool Football Club are in the finals (laughs) of the UEFA Champions League where they will play against two-time defending champions Real Madrid. Yep. Home of... Cristiano, Cristiano Ronaldo, Ronaldo. Uh, legendary, handsome, preening, divider of opinions. He is gorgeous. He's a he's a beautiful man. The thing about the problem with him though, the, I'll let. You, but the problem with him being a beautiful man is that he knows he's a beautiful man. Oh, he sure does. And I'm sorry, p- he's please. a beautiful man and the best soccer player alive. Uh, top and top, top two, top, maybe top three. It was him, Messi, and Mohamed Salah. Wow, well, I don't know about that. Guy had a good run in the playoffs. Hey, I don't know if you're going to say he's a playoffs, top three. Playoffs. I, I'm just saying he's like he's incredibly good looking. He's fantastically wealthy. He is a, just an amazing soccer player. Like life's not fair. He must have done something good in a past life. Uh, so anyway, the game is going to take place Saturday, May six, eight forty five a.m. Hawaii time. Live. That's actually not that late. No, live from Kiev in the Ukraine. Uh, we can live stream it here if our listeners want to see me have a nervous breakdown and throw up on myself. Spoiler alert, we'll probably live stream it anyway. I think that would be good. Um, you know, uh, probably the next best thing to flying all the way to Kiev. You know, I looked it up. As soon as as soon as we had the final whistle on Wednesday, we beat Roma. I punched into kayak.com. How do you get from Honolulu to Ukraine? And airfare to Eastern Europe is a little steep right now. What is it? Uh, it's about starting at 2500 bucks. That, that is steep. Uh, and hotel rooms are going to be at a premium. However... According to the Hawaii Campaign Spending Commission, a young man, a congressional candidate named Kaniela Ng, has a spare $18,000 lying around in undeclared donations. So, Representative Ng, if you need to do some quick money laundering and you want to help one of your potential constituents' dreams come true, get in touch. To add to Mr. Ng's bad day, uh, Civil Beat published the uh, best and worst attendance report for this congressional session. And guess who had the worst attendance? Uh, Speaker Joe Suki, who resigned in for sexual disgrace. harassment. Yeah, yeah, resigned in disgrace. Uh, second worst attendance. You want to take a guess? I thought it was. I thought it was Chris Lee. It was Chris Lee. Yeah. Uh, Chris Lee's excuse was he was traveling to different islands talking about climate change and, and generally just being a very handsome, friendly person. And how handsome he is. And did I, did, <laughs> number three. Yeah. Can you guess? Uh, was it a by one day? By one day. So Chris Lee. Okay. Suki, Suki, because he you know resigned yeah. in disgrace because he's a harasser. Yeah. Uh, number two, Lee. Number yeah. three, uh, young Mister Ng. Young Mister Ng. Uh, yeah. One of the days that he was out, he actually he said he couldn't come to work that day. Yeah. Uh, he had something important to do, and he held a Reddit AMA <laughs> talking about progressive politics and soliciting donations from the internet. And then uh, to just one more thing for for Kanye's bad day. Uh, that flyer went out that had uh, f- remember his thing about the LinkedIn page and his credentials uh, the fake master's degree yeah the fake master's degree that yeah. he yeah so you know I get it we've all we've all accidentally put like incorrect stuff on the internet sure uh, you know like he corrected his LinkedIn page should have said candidate but I believe maybe it. maybe he didn't even need I, to, to update no, his LinkedIn no, he's I, like I'm a, I work in government take like, him at his word take him at his word yeah but then you see it on a flyer like going out for advertising his credentials and like that's yeah. the number one thing he puts yeah. right up top like at no point is the candidate like actually that's not necessarily on him that's probably on his staff 
But well, at the end of the day, buck, the buck stops. You know, the buck stops with him when you yeah. run a campaign. The right? eighteen thousand bucks stop Eight. with him. Again, you know, only a small portion of that will be necessary to cover my expenses. Round trip, once in a lifetime opportunity, the greatest club soccer competition in the world. Two of the most prolific teams, uh, Real Madrid, have won it twelve times. Liverpool have won it five times. That's oh. a lot less than twelve. How else are you going to catch them unless you start now? <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we can get them to fifty percent. And I'm going to knock on wood right here. Uh, Oh, one last uh, fun story before we before we get to the interview. So speaking of Ukraine, I remember we mentioned my 23andMe report where it said I would, probably was not a sprinter. Yeah, I remember that. So I got an email from 23andMe. They saying, changed it? No, no. I, oh. so still, they said definitely not a sprinter. Yeah. No, they got an email saying they've updated our ancestry compilation information. Interesting. So I click through and it turns out Kiev, within the last 200 years... I had a full-blooded Ukrainian ancestor. However, oh, oh, oh. given what we know about European history... Probably was a member of the pogroms. I imagine that the intimate relations that spawned my bloodline were almost certainly not consensual. Oh, yeah, that's not good. Though the Cossacks were not known for their foreplay. Yeah, I got my 23andMe back. Let's and hit it. Yeah, what do you got? So I am a cool 99.5% white broadly i'm 100 percent white i'm 100 percent european i was 99.5 percent mostly like the overwhelming majority of that was british and irish yeah not surprising 10.8 percent french and german okay Did, didn't know that had a couple of percentage points of scandinavian the ones that were really cool is you know you can change the confidence level yeah. on on what it knows you are sure and so like the lower the confidence level went as I moved towards speculative, that's when you get more things like, well, we think, you know, you yeah. got some Denmark, some of this, some of that. Speculative, like this guy, he might be from Madagascar. Who the hell knows? Yeah. Madagascar, why not? And so if you go to 90% confidence level, yeah. it was like my Irish-British thing drops to, you know, a measly 45% or something like that. But I have 0.1% Native American at any confidence level. Hey, so, okay. All right, listeners, get ready. I officially have a voice on indigenous issues. Here we go. <laughs> so, listeners, please direct your complaints to at Ryan is little on Twitter. Yeah, or uh, bluehawaiipod at gmail.com if you'd like to get in touch. Yeah. Um, speak on it. Speak on it. Tell me, tell us how you feel about every contentious indigenous person issue right now. Oh, well, I think I could. And uh, I would just start by saying. Yeah. We often hear holiday meaning white person in a negative connotation, but it's a perfectly good word. It means foreign introduced of foreign origin or foreign introduction. So in Hawaiian, anyone or anything that is not native to Hawaii is haole. I'm Leilani Poli Ahu, Ahui Ho. Haole. Haole is a perfectly good word. Aloha, welcome to the Blue Hawaii Podcast. I'm Ryan Little. I'm Josh Michaels. And today we have an incredibly special guest for you. We have Congresswoman Colleen Hanabusa. We are actually recording at her office, not live. You're hearing this a couple of days after. We're on the road. We're on the road. It's our, uh, our third road show in a row, and this one plans to be the best. Congresswoman, thank you so much for being with us. You're currently in CD1, Congressional District 1. And That's right. And you are currently running to unseat incumbent Democratic Governor David Ige for Governor of Hawaii. 
That's right, too. Now, listeners, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I previously worked for a brief stint in the congresswoman's office, but the Blue Hawaii podcast is remaining totally neutral. Totally neutral. Uh, We are in no way involved with any of the campaigns. By the time you hear this, invitations will have been sent to all the other gubernatorial candidates to come talk story with us. We're talking to you, David Ige. Come on on. (laughs) Come on. Talk to us. (laughs) And in fact, listeners, if you think at any point we're being biased, harsh, too soft, too unfair, call us out, you know. Drag me on Twitter, and some of you probably will anyway, but we know you want to. Anyway, with that said, again, Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining us. Obviously, very sad news this morning. Hawaii's beloved Senator Daniel Akaka, uh, first and only Native Hawaiian elected to the U.S. Senate, passed away at the age of 93. Can you share your thoughts on his legacy and what he meant to the state of Hawaii? You know, as I look at you, Josh, I was just remembering for you, this is the second one. You were in Washington, yeah. D.C. with Senator Inouye, and that's where I first actually met you. And when you came to Hawaii, they, they singled you out to Look at to that speak, big heli. <laughs> to speak. <laughs> no, it was because you were very eloquent about how you felt about the senator. So Senator Kaka is, is a, a different kind of person, as you know from being in Washington. What I tell people the most important thing about Senator Kaka is Senator Kaka represents that which is good or potentially could be good in all of us. That's the kind of guy he was. And, yeah. and when, you, when you think about him, the sadness that I feel is more f- really for Hawaii because I wonder who's going to fill that void of, of really somebody who advocates for his people. You know, he was uh, he was very proud and very effective as being the highest-ranking Native Hawaiian ever to serve mm-hmm. the state of Hawaii, and and he was extremely good at it. We all say that he was Mr. Aloha. He was somebody who who was there and everybody liked. But what somehow we lose in the translation, and I don't want people to forget this, is he was also very effective mm-hmm. at what he did. Time Magazine, Time Magazine, you take it back. That's right. We still, still haven't forgiven you. That's right. <laughs> Never will. Well, that's because when you when you think about it, he's not the kind of person that they probably they probably understood. Mm-hmm. They didn't understand the effectiveness of someone who who could really be on both sides of the aisles. Didn't need the accolades. Didn't need the statistics that they base things on. It was what was the bottom line for the people of Hawaii, and that's what Senator Akaka was. He never forgot in his heart, as well as what he did as to who he represented and who he truly loved, the people. Thank you for that. Rest in peace, Senator Akaka. Lots of your Republican colleagues in the House are fleeing, but you seem to be one of the Democrats deciding to leave Washington as well. What's your view on the dysfunction of D.C., and how do you see this election season playing out nationally? You know, we've lost, or we're losing Democrats too. And a lot of it is because a lot of them are running for governors throughout the United States. And we are also losing people who are moving to the United States Senate or trying to move to the United States Senate. So it's not only the Republicans. What, however, is unfortunate about my Republican colleagues who have chosen to leave who I know is that they're moderates. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the saddest statement. I think what has happened uh, over what I call the Trump era and the pre-Trump era is this, this sense of really just uh, drawing the line in the sand. We can call it 
partisanism, whatever you want to call it, but it really is a sense that you're either with us or against us. It's no, it's gone. It's tribal now. It's tribalism. Yeah. It's yeah. like a team sport. Yeah. It's, exactly. it's kind of devolved from you know. Let's talk about but it's politics with information. Mm-hmm. It's both sides of the aisle that's doing it. It's not only it's not only Freedom Caucus. When I got elected, it was the Tea Party. It's not only that. It's it's on both sides. So if you're not liberal enough or you're not progressive enough, we have those issues going. It's actually really funny you mention that because right now there's a lot in the media about. Representative Nancy Pelosi. And on the one hand, she's probably your most effective fundraiser and legislative organizer in Congress. But conservative media has sort of turned her into a boogeyman. And in fact, I've lived in Hawaii for several years, but I did a brief stint back in Georgia where they were doing the special election and John Ossoff ran. And in the southern United States, where I'm actually originally from, Nancy Pelosi is like a four-letter word. And and because now President Trump is, you know, New York and they can't say New York values, thanks Ted Cruz. On on the radio, the ads that they run that are most effective are they sound something like this. John Ossoff is running to like represent our San Francisco values. Us uh, Nancy Pelosi and all of our friends, they really love John Ossoff. And so she's turned into like this like scare tactic of a person. But how do you see her role going forward? You know, that's always been Nancy Pelosi. When I ran in 2010, the uh, the ad with the Republican National Committee ran was, uh, they at least depicted my clogs. You know, everybody talks yeah. about my clogs. <laughs> and I was sitting on the SS... Boots are made for walking. Those famous clogs. Exactly. I was sitting on the bow of the SS Pelosi. And they ran those ads. And I and I remember that. I couldn't recall ever meeting Nancy Pelosi. I can't even recall seeing the SS Pelosi in Honolulu Harbor. Have you guys ever seen? No, never seen it. But Did it you was, have to go to San Francisco to get on the SS Pelosi? I never got on the SS Pelosi. Mm. They just put me on the SS Almost Pelosi. Almost like they were intentionally deceiving. Uh, it was it was because they thought it worked even here. Yeah. And it's just in the more than Georgia Six, as we called it. Think about Lamb, who won, yeah. and, and barely, I mean, by about under 600 votes. But think about that. He had to disavow Nancy Pelosi, mm-hmm. disavow a lot of the, the Democratic, quote, values to win. And that is, a, back to the whole issue of what's going on in Washington, that's the discussion. I know some of my colleagues who got up and said, you know, you guys vilify us, those of us who are more moderate, those of us who are considered, he's not a blue dog, but he was saying, you know, you, when you think about it, how do you think you're going to take back middle America? So everybody wants the Democrats to take back the majority, but you're not willing to recognize that there is a middle America and how middle America feels. Mm-hmm. And that's why the Pennsylvania election with Conor Lamb was, so, was, was a wake-up call. And, you know, even in the South, you're from the South, right? From Alabama, Doug Jones. Alabama. Yeah. Montgomery, Alabama, shout out to you, famous for our racism. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, my very good friend, she was elected the first time with me, is Terry Sewell. Oh, really? Rep Sewell. Right? Rep Sewell was very instrumental in that Mm -hmm. win. Mm -hmm. But think about what it took. It took 98% African-American women and something like 93% of all African-American men to come out and vote. And And it took the other guy. the worst candidate in history. I mean, not a convicted, a credibly accused child molester four times over, something like that. I mean, if that's that's what it takes in and in then, but the think land. about it. And then they, they, he won, he was he basically lost. I guess is a better way of putting it. Twenty thousand votes, and 
President Trump gets to say, and I didn't support him. Remember, he said he uh, didn't think he was a good candidate. Yeah. And, of course, he says, well, I was right, you know, and whatever else. But but think about that. He absolutely supported him, by the way. I mean, he, he ran. Takes, yeah. He ran. All, takes. He went down into the panhandle of Florida, just on the other side of the Alabama line, and held a big rally that was. I remember that. It was in, in no that. small way a major uh, a major turnout driver for Roy Moore. But think about what's going on in the South. Terry, until that election was not only the only African-American woman, she's the only Democrat mm-hmm. in Alabama. Mm-hmm. Then my other friend who was elected the same time with us is Cedric Richmond mm-hmm. in, in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. He is the only African-American, high-ranking Democrat in Louisiana. The famous and uh, Jim Clyburn, the only African-American mm-hmm. Democrat, but, but they're the only, and when I say African-American Democrat, I don't mean that. I mean African-American and Democrat, mm-hmm. both categories, South Carolina. And another guy, he's, he tells me, Colleen, I'm, I'm a white guy, and he's from Iowa. He's the only Democrat. Yeah. And he said, I'm the only Democrat. He says, the difference between me and Terry and all the rest of the guys is I'm white and they're not. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, but that's, that's, that just tells you there's something going on in middle America and the South that we've all got to recognize. So as, as they leave, the quote moderate Republicans leave, it, it makes me wonder whether they're more concerned, and some of them have said this to me, we're, more, we're not afraid of you guys. We're afraid primaries. of primaries, yeah. being primary. We're not afraid of you. It's the primary mm-hmm. that we're afraid of. And when you talk to the, uh, your GOP colleagues who aren't fleeing, um, the one, you know, they maybe admit, uh, we're a little terrified of our base, so we're going to keep our mouths shut. Do any of them privately express buyer's remorse over Trump? Like, well, what, no, a lot what of, we get ourselves into? Uh, a lot of them don't have buyer's remorse because I think a lot of them weren't there to support him to begin with. You know, so buyer's remorse are, I think if any of them, it's probably the guys who went to the cabinet and are being fired now. Yeah. <laughs> they may be buyer's remorse, but, but most, you, of guys, yeah, yeah. Most, most of the guys who are, are, uh, are there, I mean, who are leaving, were not really Trump supporters. Mm. They just sort of fell in line. Well, uh, yeah, after, you know, like... All of us good party people do, who, yeah. irrespective of who it is. But it's yeah, that's exactly what I think. Happened. And they're being punished for that. I mean, the the Doug Jones election, obviously. I, I mean, not to bring it back to Alabama, mm-hmm. but was in no small part due to backlash against President Trump. Because there is, you know, as the baby boomers are are aging out of the voting block, uh, I guess the more politically correct way of saying dying. Um, millennials are now the largest generation in the country and they're starting to make that presence known and i know in the conservative states traditionally we were taught that everybody truly was equal and we were around we were educated before the tea party we were educated before trumpism and i think i think we're going to see more and more of that as time goes on maybe i'm just a incredibly hopeless optimist but uh lord willing well i hope you're right and because the reason why i hope you're right is because I think what's fueling all of this that people do not want to admit is the, 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 the fear, the absolute fear that by 2045, the population of the United States will be, the majority will be minorities. Mm-hmm. But if we're, all, if we're all truly equal, what are they so afraid of? Like, one, is, it, is it like minorities are treated poorly in America or something? <laughs> I don't know. 
No, I, I think it's it's not knowing. Yeah, I, I the fear is not okay. knowing. They don't know what it means. And if you, know? you had that, if you were the top dog, I mean, if you're yeah. king of the mountain, and then somebody says you're no longer going to be king of the mountain, no matter what the alternate the yeah. alternative that they offer you is, it's potentially not going to seem as good as being you know chief on top number one. Or it's the old adage about you know what you what you're you're just projecting onto them what you would. That's exactly what right. What you'd expect mm-hmm. of yourself. Mm-hmm. So that yeah. that's why the fear. Because if you were in that position, what would you do? And I think that's that's what's that's what we're dealing with. And we've got to come to some understanding and some way to control that fear. Because if we don't, if we don't, it's it's not you know it's not like we're going to wake up in twenty forty five and all of a sudden we're going to be there. It's just going to be something that's going to happen over time and it'll more we'll fracturing. It. Yeah, that's right. And unless we figure it out now, there's going to be no good answer when it happens. Now speaking of fear, do you think Donald Trump is going to end up meeting with Kim Jong Un? I think he will. I think he will. And and I uh, and the reason why I I say that is because Donald Trump is always looking for some way to to basically shove it in everyone's face. I mean, he, he just does. It has nothing to do with merits or anything like that. It just has to do it with, I was the first to do yeah. whatever, right? And I, uh, in the r- early March, I was at uh, Stanford at an Aspen Institute. And the, the topic was North Korea. Matter of fact, if you guys are interested, you can go on our on our website, and I think we we have the full report that's made for the public. That's uh, www.hanabusa.house.gov? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Listeners, that was for you. <laughs> I know. I think so. I, I think that's where, it, where it's at. You said the you were a former staffer? Uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, so, but if you, if you go to that, and what I can tell you, the main topic was the only way North Korea will resolve itself, and this is from... We had experts from um, China, from all over the United States, former um, ambassadors, former secretaries of the navies. Thus, we also had South Korean experts. They said one thing. North Korea has got to talk to the United States. And mm-hmm. personally, I said, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, We're really a third party. So what about South Korea? Mm-hmm. What do they think? What about China? Yeah. What about Japan? You know, They're all part of this equation. Everyone said, no, it's North Korea and the United States speaking, or we're not going to get this thing resolved. So given that, I think that there is going to be a conversation. Interesting. Tell us about the missile alert field hearing that the congressional delegation just held. You know, I think that um, when it first happened, uh, the, the delegation were like any other issue. I think everybody had their ideas of how it should be resolved or what was the major cause, so to speak. I think at yesterday's hearing, by the time we got to that hearing, I think we were all uniform, which is, Mm. you know, even if there's only four of us, that in and of itself is a statement. And we were uniform that the, um, it should not stay in Hayama, which is the Hawaii Mm -hmm. Emergency Management Alert System, you know, agency. What it should be is the missile component of it should be within the DOD. Mm-hmm. And the DOD should notify not only us, Hawaii, but the rest of the United States, because a missile attack on Hawaii is an act of war. Yeah. And it is against the whole country. It's not, it's like 
to bring history back is like Pearl Harbor, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know, it's, it is an attack, uh, though it may be on one state, it is an attack of us all. 9-11 was no different. Mm-hmm. It was, of course, the mm-hmm. first time that we consider ourselves, Hawaii is American soil. It was still arguably a territory, so somebody could slice it a little different, but 9-11 was clearly a situation. But an attack on Hawaii, if it were to happen, would be an act of war. So it should be something that the DOD um, plays in. And the most, the other important thing is that if you go and watch that hearing, they're running all these parallel courses, and they're trying to justify why Hawaii's emergency uh, alert system, management system, should be a part of it. But you can see that whenever you do something like that, there's bound to be room for error. <laughs> so the information comes from NORTHCOM, and it comes to PACOM, and as far as I'm concerned, that's what we want to know. We don't want to know whether it filters correctly down. So not that, it, that there isn't a role for HIEMA. There is, it's, but it's in the area of natural disasters, but not, not military. And just for our listeners, um, would this be coming, uh, when, if that alert were to come from DOD, would that come from Pacific Command here in Hawaii, or would it come from NORTHCOM in Colorado? I'm not, we, we're basically uh, leaving it uh, up to them to, to make that decision as to what would be the efficient way because we would have to also, as part of the process, determine how they would interface because mm-hmm. we still have to get that worked out, how they would interface with the, the wireless system or iPods or anything else. They, they would have to interface because I don't know if you, if you watched it, but one of the surprising things with FEMA that has a role in iPods, that's a uh, notification system, is uh, they need to be, uh, quote, released by the president to basically do an alert. And I said, well, that's, that's absurd. Yeah. I mean, you know, we don't need that. So every delay lessens the public confidence, which is what we were aiming for, was the rebuilding of public confidence. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on locally. Uh, you were born and raised in Waianae. Well, I was born in Queens Hospital. (laughs) (laughs) Correction. (laughs) Raised in Wyoming. Easy, Holly. (laughs) (laughs) My my great-grandmother was the midwife, but she wasn't around (laughs) delivering when I was born. <laughs> wow, she got she got me good. I, I got when Question did, withdrawn. When did uh, when did Wai-Nai, when was Wai'anae Coast Comprehensive built? It was built, I think, in the it, well. It was built kind of in segments. Okay. So the the great establishment you see now yeah. has been more recent. Yeah. But it, uh, I, it was there in the I think in the late sixties, early seventies. Got it. Okay. Well, so so speaking of Wai'anae, where you were raised, mm-hmm. after Not a, born after a drive up from Queens Hospital. <laughs> right. 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 Uh, have you had a chance to visit Puho No Wai'anae? You know, I haven't. Uh, I haven't visited it. Uh, I visit. I I know its predecessor entity, and the reason why it's it's uh, important is that the whole issue of of homeless living between Waianae High School and what we call the four four two building, and and as you know, Puuhonua o Waianae is actually in the Calvi trees next to the mm-hmm. high school, but uh, I I remember. The, a lot of the people were in cars in the parking lot mm-hmm. before that. So the whole issue of homeless on the Waianae Coast is not, is not a new situation. I mean, it's been there forever. And they gradually, I believe, moved into the, quote, Kiave bushes. Mm-hmm. So I have not seen it um, since it's become such an established mm-hmm. situation there. 
but it is established. And I think that's the critical aspects of it. It is something that's been there and, you know, government has chosen to ignore it. Then all of a sudden government says we have to clean it out. We have to sweep yeah. it. And they say, oh, no, we don't. Yeah, we, yeah. By the way, we yeah. made that all up. And that grant program. It the, never existed. Don't worry about that. Yeah. But the, but remember what the issue was? It was the opai. Yeah. The opai ula, the, yeah. Right. Yeah. And then that all of a sudden, and that's, those opai has been there as far as I know forever. But now they are the reason why mm-hmm. you have to sweep. And, you know, that's why people lose confidence in, in government. And, and more than that, it's the flip-flopping. You know, we got to do it and we don't got to do it. And, and so when I was asked about it, I said, where are they going? I said, my greatest fear is that if you sweep without mm-hmm. an alternative, is I don't want to see people either moving further down, mm-hmm. uh, which, which as, as we know from what happens in Honolulu, it, it, it does do that, or worse than that, into the mountains. And then you can't ever get the services required mm-hmm. to them. So I think that, um, but the, the, the most, I guess, upsetting part about it is it's been there. And we've seen it from way before. That's what resulted in 2006 and the movements. Executive order by Governor Lingo, actually, which built some of the shelters back then. So the tent city, as we call it affectionately in Waianae, <laughs> that all came out on an executive order. It's interesting that you're, you're framing of it as being you know starting in cars and, and the eventual fear of people moving down and moving to the mountains so uh, josh and i were fortunate enough to go out and uh, sit down with anti twinkle borge right. who's the kind of the the head of the wine camp Honua, and uh she said the same thing basically i mean uh we did an episode on it and our audio file was corrupted so listeners just got to take our word for it <laughs> but um she said, you know, we've been here 20 years and she said, we've actually made a lot of progress in turning it from a place where, you know, fights used to happen between people who are like sweltering in their cars or having to, you know, sleep on a car seat. So now we've got tents, we've got sanitation rules, we've got community guidelines, we kick people out, we welcome them in. So it's it's very interesting to hear your perspective as a, as a Waianae native that, uh, you know, it it builds credibility to her because I don't have a frame of reference for Waianae. You know, I've, I'm only been in Honolulu six years and, and I've lived in town in all of them. So you know, I, I want to share with you, I, as you know, I was the state senator from that area mm-hmm. uh, before I went to Congress. One of the things that I remember and I tell people, I said, you want to know about about the people I represent? And I tell them this, you know, whenever there was a halfway house or some issue like that that came up, the Waianae Neighborhood Board would open it up to the public. And the public would come in and say, you know, if we don't take them, who will? Mm-hmm. So a lot of halfway houses were being built. The only time I ever saw the community, and even when they were in the cars, it was like, where where are they going? Mm-hmm. It's a compassionate community. Yeah. Generosity. I've never seen Aloha like I saw at Pu'uhanua. Oh, yes. I mean, it was the most, they never turn anybody away. They never, you know, if you're hungry, they feed you. If you need a place to sleep, they give you a place to stay. It was It was the most humbling experience that i've ever seen and i tell people it is it is it is that is what defines them and i said you're going to turn your back in a community like that and i said they they know there's no place else that will welcome them the only time i ever saw it get a bit um testy Mm -hmm. is i a lot of the nanakuli people would go to the beach on uh, like during the summer months. And they would um, practically live on the beach. It was like reconnecting with the land. 
But, you know, they'd go home, take their showers, whatever else, and then go to the beach and, and spend the whole summer there. Uh, when that kind of got disrupted because mm. we had homeless on the Nanakuli Beach, that's the only time I ever saw them say, you know, we got to do something about mm. this. And then they interfered with, they quote-unquote felt that they were interfering with their potential um, uh, regatta. Yeah. But then, you know what? They, they struck a deal. They got the homeless that were there to watch the canoes, gave them T-shirts, and they became the security patrol. But that's the way the people are. That's why I tell people, you know, I was very fortunate. No matter what people may think and the stigma that they may have of people from I. It's usually very unfair. It's very unfair. You're not going to find a more compassionate. Now, uh, you mentioned, you know, your concern that if we start, you know, forcing people out, force them up to the mountains, force them around town. Mayor Kurt Caldwell, in his State of the City address, he mentioned he wants to expand the Sitlai ban to all of Oahu, which to us seems like that would create the exact problem you're trying to avoid. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I I, I don't think um, Sitlai ban is is a uh, is the answer or, or should be expanded. I think that every council member who has any homeless probably wants uh, a policy like that, but that's not gonna solve it. You're just gonna move people around. You need, you need to figure out, they, the, the numbers, assuming the numbers are correct, and I tell people, we should know by now, we've been, we've been taking uh, head counts for how long? It seems like every year there's another study. That's right. And then we should also know who or what the characteristics of those who are homeless are Mm -hmm. because they are not the same. And, you know, I I think that what we need to do is we need to prioritize first who will go or who welcomes the opportunity to be in a, quote, shelter situation or the opportunity to live in a community-like setting like what Duane Kuisu did in San Island. Mm -hmm. I went to visit that, and I was absolutely shocked and, and impressed because those homes came up in, like, less than a week. And remember, they were, um, I don't know how Dwayne found it, but they were in some uh, uh, warehouse in Japan because mm-hmm. the Komatsu tractor people built it for the Tohoku earthquake, mm-hmm. 2011, mm-hmm. Huh? March 11, 20, 2011. And they brought it here, and they could put it up. And, and they're forming a community. I mean, you know, when, when you think about that, and they were concentrating on families, usually single mother families, but still families. And they're putting in a, a uh, store, mm-hmm. uh, convenience kind of store, Palama Market. I mean, you know, <laughs> that's, that's perfect yeah. for the, the population. And they're doing, um, they have PAC doing uh, child care. For, so that they can, and then they're on the bus route. How good is that? That's the reason why when you look at the YNI situation, for those who are working homeless, that bus line. And most of them are. Right. Most of them are working. Are working homeless. And that's why it's a different different set of characteristics. They're not, it's not like they're just, you know, uh, like in New York, they call them bums. It's not like they're just bums on the no. street. It's like these people have full-time jobs yeah. and they just cannot afford to live here because it's so expensive. That's right. And you can't even afford... Even if you say you're going to do affordable rentals or whatever else. It's affordable to, to who? who? Yeah. To who? That's Auntie Twinkle's line she kept coming back to is affordable to who? So That's right. we had um, Anthony Ching, former head of the HCDA. Oh, yeah. Wonderful interview. Great guy. And I, I would say I do I disagree a little bit with the regime that HCDA has implemented in terms of affordable housing because it, it doesn't seem like it's working. And w- the question that we've 
been getting from our listeners over and over is what needs to be done that we're not doing. Well, you know, I uh, the one thing I I appreciated about uh, the Sand Island location is that they are building communities. And I asked the question, do you like at a certain point have to move out because you're overqualified? They said, no, you can stay there as long as you want to stay there. And they they do charge a rent, but it's it, in my opinion, it's it is a reasonable rent, two bedroom. I think it's thirteen hundred uh, for yeah, a two bedroom. Nine hundred. Oh, nine hundred. Nine hundred. You know who so, would know that? Shout out friend of the show, Ashley Lowe, a Family Promise of Hawaii. She's told us that a million times. Nine hundred dollars. You know, a, a regular market in Honolulu can't even get you a studio anymore. You can't. You can't. <laughs> you can barely get you a hotel room. Yeah. So, so you know, when you when you think about it, it's but it's targeting that group. So. I think the first thing is that, and I don't want to study it again. I think we got to go with what we have. Yeah. And I, I think the fact that we take so long, we study, we appoint czars and so forth. <laughs> it's so refreshing we, to hear. <laughs> we got we to stop that. Yeah. We gotta, I mean, if we don't have the information now, forget it. We're never going to have the But Congresswoman, if we don't study the study, how do we know that that study is valid? <laughs> and what will that affect future studies? How, how do you know you need a study? <laughs> well, we got to get a study to know that we need a study. Exactly. Yeah. And then, then <laughs> study, right? well, so we'll be studying all the way till <laughs> you can become a model again. <laughs> but it's it's really a situation where you you just got to change the paradigm. You got to say enough. Let's let's do it with the information that we have. Let's figure out how many people fit in each. And and you know, I have people come up to me who are doctors retired, mm-hmm. and they. They tell me, Colleen, we want to work with those in Y&I who don't want to go into any kind of shelters. Mm-hmm. And I look at them and they, I said, do you have any idea what you would be doing? He says, oh, yeah. They go out there and they give physicals so that the kids of the homeless can pay, play sports, they can do all that. He says, but he said, the problem are the adults. Mm-hmm. We want to work with them. But he says, but we want to see that the kids are taken care of first. So, you know, something that... People who are not studying the studies of the studies of the studies, <laughs> I mean, it's common sense. Let's put some common sense into this. And let's say, okay, this group, we know we can get into shelters of some sort. Just let's get those shelters up and running. Use executive orders for that purpose, mm. that you suspend whatever and get things going. Use that. That's where government can operate. A lot of people will tell you, that the most difficult part for people who want to provide affordable sh- uh, shelters or affordable situations is the cost of land, mm-hmm. rent or whatever. Government has a lot of land, you know, let's, and let's find them so that they are on bus routes and, and easily accessible, close to a school. Build that community, build it, and then take care of them. Then for those who are, have, any kind of uh, mental health issues or those who should have meds, that's a more difficult issue, but the legislature has to step up and decide that. Do we then, and it may not be a popular position, but one that we have to have the discussion when a law is possibly debated, do we do have an institutional component like we did before? Is that something that we need to have. Are there people there who need that structure? critical care inpatient yeah. services? Right. Yeah. And that, and that's and you know we you know uh, us bleeding yeah. heart liberals have got we, to yeah. how do we do it in a humane and compassionate right. way? Exactly. Right? Yeah. That's that I agree with. But uh, the first step is bl- us bleeding heart liberals. <laughs> we We're have in good to, company here. Yeah, we have to decide that you know what maybe there is that. And and the first time I came across that whole thing is when I was. Uh, I did a 
uh, quote task force on crystal meth, and we were looking at okay, how do we how do we battle this? It was big on the Big Island, and someone just said, "Look, let me tell you something, you bleeding heart liberal." That's <laughs> it. Some people need to be institutionalized, need to be given a structure because without that structure, they will never get better. And I thought, wow, that makes a lot of sense. And so maybe the answer isn't you know, barbed wire fences, maybe it's something more right. like a restorative, yeah. uh, you know, holistic exactly. mental health process. It's probably what President Kennedy ex- wanted or imagined when he deinstitutionalized. But the problem was that we didn't have a, a community-based system that could really do it. So I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that you, do we need a, we need to at least explore a structure where people who need help and cannot get it on their own, that need to be on meds, are, are in that situation. And it's not, a, it's not an easy discussion, but you gotta do that, or you're gonna always have the people pushing carts, for example, mm-hmm. and you're not gonna get them any better. And then you have those who just choose, just choose that lifestyle, right? Then we have to look at whether or not, I don't like the word criminalization, but, but the question is, maybe if you choose that lifestyle, then there are consequences to choosing that lifestyle. We can't shy away from that. So in other words, we have to divide the population to take care of those who are in that situation through no fault of their own or need a little bit more help or maybe really have no cognitive ability to know what's going on and and also those who no matter what we do are going to still do it and we have to make those hard decisions and recognize that and that's just i'm sure there are gray areas in each of those categories absolutely but it's not a black and white issue no it's not but we got to start with as as clear to whatever we can or we're not going to do it we don't have right now a huge number. If the numbers are correct, and we have a total of about 7,000, why can't we address it? If you think about this, like Twinkle said, for 20 years, or from what I know, we were about 12 years or 13 years into this problem. Why, you take all the money that we've spent for the number that we have. Why don't we have a better solution? We should. It's embarrassing that we don't. So shifting gears a little bit, one of the biggest developments we've seen in the past year is the impact of the Me Too and Time's Up movements. And women here and all across the country are standing up and speaking out, sharing their stories of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Um, Can you speak a little bit about what you think the movement means for women in America and specifically women in Hawaii? You know, I think that it actually precedes all of that. I think it was with the Women's March that you found that... uh, women said, hey, it's, it's okay to speak up. It's okay to protest. And it's, it's just okay to say, uh, this is not fair. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, the Me Too and the Time's Up uh, movement started. And it, what, what is unfortunate is the fact that we needed that to get to the, the essence of the problem, which is that women are not treated equally. Patriarchy. And, and I, and I can tell you, when I became Senate president, I was the first woman to head either house in the Hawaii State Legislature. We became a state in 1959. I took that office in 2006, the ending of 2006. And I tell people, do you know for a progressive state like Hawaii what that statement is? Because we 
never had anybody before. And women, and I said, when I first got elected, it was in 1998, so I took office in 1999. I remember soon after that, that my male colleagues would say to me, we just want you to know, a Wahini will never be president of the Senate. Wow. You told him? Shows him. Yeah. But, and, but the reason is We'll let those male colleagues remain right, anonymous. Right. <laughs> right. And, you know, and, but, uh, but then, you know. Unless and, you want to say them. No. If you want to say them, feel free. But. No, but, but, the, but the other part of it is when I became Senate president, it was unanimous. And some of them who said that were one of my greatest advocates. And I think the, the reason, is, especially in Hawaii, you talked about what the impact for Hawaii. Hawaii has another layer of issues, which is our cultural issues. You know, I'm, I'm Japanese-American, right? So we also have that. So the guy who told me that, by the way, was Japanese-American too. And, and I'm also uh, an attorney. I don't practice now because I'm... Because uh, you're not uh, uh, self-hating and <laughs> no. for punishment. No, no, <laughs> so no, instead I just I can't. do DC politics. <laughs> because I can't. <laughs> why, why, practice, cause why yeah. practice law when you can be in Congress? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd but, rather be more miserable than practicing law. <laughs> miserable for the service of others. Yeah, there you go. So Miserable so you, with better vacation and benefits. <laughs> so same thing, same thing with, with being in law. Yeah. You know, uh, I've had I've had a very prominent attorney in in Hawaii who I remember when I first started out, and you know the, uh, my my uh, partner I was uh, associate asked for time to do a brief, and this lawyer said to the judge, he doesn't need time, he has her. What she do you think she's here for? She's taking notes, <sighs> and the judge turned to this prominent lawyer and said. She, Miss Hanabusa, is a lawyer just like you and me. She's not here to just take notes. And he goes, well, what else is she here for? That's what he said. Jesus. So you care to shout out that judge? I'm curious. Do you remember? <laughs> no, the, I know the judge. I won't shout out the prominent I, lawyer. I'm but curious who the judge. Yeah, yeah. Can, the judge can, was the judge was Judge Sodetani. So I was Judge Sodetani. Judge Sodetani. So he you. said he said no, and he told the the my partner that uh, how much time do you want? And he said, oh, can I have a week after transcripts? And the other lawyer stands up again and says, I told you, Your Honor, he doesn't need the time. She can, he can use her, her notes. And the judge said, I will give you two weeks Boom. after transcripts. And he told the court <laughs> reporter, and you don't have to rush. That's awesome. So, you know, I mean, but that's what it's like, even for a, a woman mm-hmm. uh, in Hawaii. And that's not that long ago. So when you think about what we go through as, as not only breaking into professions, but in the political scene. So I- I the Hawaii State Legislature, now you have women who have served in, after me, they've served in positions like Senate President, plus you've had people uh, serving in uh, the Ways and Means and, and Finance Chair. But think about how long it took. Because you know what, a lot of the men's views of women are, Oh, they can do the family issues. Or, you know, or if you're a lawyer, yeah. I love this. They can do family court because they have empathy, right? Mm-hmm. Or the other one is, oh, they can do code, you know, like uh, tax codes. Or, or they can do real estate documents because that's their mindset. Uh, They're very good at details. You know, that's what they say. Oh, wait, hold on. We got a yeah. off, uh, off mic voice. Please go ahead. <laughs> Peter Boylan, guest of the show tomorrow. 
Do you remember what Arthur Rutledge asked you the first time you walked oh, into yeah. the room to represent him? So I was representing, see, I did litigation, which is also not something that people thought <laughs> women should do, but. No I, one should do litigation. <laughs> it's bad so, for your health. So I represented, I had a case, and I was brought in right before trial, and Arthur Rutledge was, and there was a male associate who was doing it, but my partner said, hey, we think you should take over this case. So I, I, I walked in, and Arthur Rutledge uh, looked at me, and he goes, and who are you? And I said, well, I'm, I'm your attorney. I'm going to be your, your trial attorney. And he looked at me, and he goes, you know, this little girl, he says, you should be home taking care of your husband, oh. cooking him dinner. Swing and a miss. And you know, and then, and, but to his credit, two days later, he told me, um, and no, and so I told him, I said, Mr. Rutledge, be here at 8.30, no later than 8.30 tomorrow morning, and you better count your lucky stars that you have me for your lawyer. Mama said, knock you out. <laughs> <laughs> two, year, two days later, two days later, he told me, I, uh, you know, I went to the temple. And I said, Mr. Rutledge, you don't ever go to the temple. And he, goes, <laughs> and he says, no, oh, I went. I they, went. Gave me, they gave me this woman lawyer? <laughs> I know. What is That's the world exactly, coming to? He's scratching That's exactly about what he oy. did. He went to the temple and, oy, he says, oy, oy. and I told him, you know, I have this little Japanese girl as my lawyer. And I, I swear she can't be Japanese. And he said, the voice came to me. And I said, oh, the voice? He goes, yeah. The voice said, you're right. She's one of us. Her <laughs> real name is Dolly Kalinsky. Dolly Kalinsky. <laughs> so I was Dolly Kalinsky to Arthur Rutledge from that day forward. Well, Miss Kalinsky, uh, you're uh, running for governor by a different name. What? She doesn't want to run for president? <laughs> Blue Hawaii Podcast is supported by Homebrew in Paradise. Homebrew. In paradise. Homebrew in paradise is the place to go. It's it's not even if you just want to talk to somebody about beer, you don't even have to go in there with a mindset of, you know what, I'm gonna make my own wine or I'm gonna make my own fermented foods. If you just want to know more about beer today than you did yesterday, go on down to Homebrew in Paradise, talk to Chris and Bill. They'll tell you everything you've ever wanted to know. And I guarantee you, when you go down there, when you see the equipment, when you see what they're making and how good the quality of beer is that you can make yourself, you'll never want to buy something from the gas station again. Homebrew in Paradise. Friendlier than Wikipedia. Homebrew in Paradise. 740 Mo'ova'a Street in Kalihikai. No, we're dropping, a, we're dropping a lot of legal terms. You talked about law school. You're a lawyer. Uh, we're lawyers. A lot of our listeners are lawyers. How would you better integrate Olelo Hawaii into our courtrooms and our state government operations? You know, I don't think there should be a question about Olelo Hawaii because, as you know, it's part of our constitution. We have two official languages. One is English and the other is Hawaiian. I think the, the judge who, um, and, I, and I really don't remember who he is, I think it was a he even. Uh, I think that, it was, yeah. yeah. I mean, he had no right doing what he did. The person chose the language. It was upon, incumbent upon the judiciary, and I think no one had tested the judiciary before. It's incumbent upon the judiciary to ensure that if, if someone chooses, they, they should have just simply 
recess the trial. Brought the easiest in thing to do in the right. world, right? Yeah. You just call a recess and say, we'll come back That's when right. we got a translator. And, and do that. I also think that one of the things as I look back, as I grew up in, in of course, Waianae, and the Waianae the, the Coast has the largest percentage of Native Hawaiians, irrespective of, and people are going to get confused when I say this, but whether you have a big N or a small N, and the small N refers to those who are 50% blood quantum, in other words, uh, beneficiaries under the Hawaiian Homes Commission Act. Either category, the Waianae Coast is, is the largest percentage. And, and what I tell people is that till today, my greatest regret is I took absolutely no Hawaiian history course. There wasn't even offered. And I took no Hawaiian language course. I think Hawaiian language should be a required course uh, to graduate absolutely. in Hawaii. Yep. And you definitely got to have Hawaiian history. Yep. If you don't know where we came from or that which defines us here, we will never reach our full potential. It's interesting that you that you bring that up because uh, I last night I went to a slam poetry event at Hawaiian Bryan's and uh, the pool hall. It well, it's pool hall slash concert venue oh, okay, among other okay, things. Okay, okay, And so <laughs> that's the only Hawaiian Bryan's yeah. I know. So no, I was same one, gonna, same one, same yeah. one. Okay, Kapiulani, okay, okay, yeah. Okay. And so you uh, hipsters. <laughs> so they, I, I was uh, really surprised and also very. Um, proud and and excited for the number of native indigenous like pacific island um cultures that were represented there there was Samoan, there was uh maori there was hawaiian and what was a common theme in all of them though was that because their cultures had been sort of erased from the mainstream mm -hmm. of where they grew up that they were all ashamed of them and that they'd they harbored a lot of shame and pain. Mm -hmm. And a lot of their poems were um, emotional reactions to coming to grips with that and then re-embracing that. And I think you're hitting on exactly what is causing that, which is that we don't teach it in our schools. We don't teach the history. We don't teach the language. We don't teach any of it. And it's leading to real trauma for people as well as a disenfranchisement in the, the homeland of your people. Yeah. And Language is fundamental to culture more than anything else. If you don't have language, how do you communicate? How do you express yourself? It is worse than that. When, uh, before we were a state, we prohibited the speaking of Hawaiian. Mm -hmm. And and literally, if they spoke Hawaiian in the schools, I was told that you know the ruler would come out and those were the days of corporal punishment and you would get whacked. And that was, a friend of mine, Bar Reverend Bob Nakata told me, he said, it's like, not being able to speak in your own house. And yeah. I said, I said that's an accurate description. Mm -hmm. Not being able to speak in your own house. And the real other problem is how do we undo that? You know, because I grew up in Wa'anae, uh, there's, a, there's a group of people who would move from Ni'ihau to, and as you know, in those days, once you left Ni'ihau, mm -hmm. you could not return. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember Auntie Maleka. And her Hawaiian was very different than the Hawaiian that I heard spoken. I mean, I didn't understand, except for some words, but she had, in my opinion, a very, very strong, um, what, I, what I would call like a warrior's kind of Hawaiian, which I thought was probably the true Hawaiian, though I come to understand that there are different dialects. But to think, will we be able to recover that? So till today, I am I'm very grateful that we have Ni'ihau, where to a large extent, that 
the, the culture is in its pure stage or as pure as it can be. And I just hope that we're able to capture that before it's lost forever. One more question before we share our <laughs> listener questions. Okay. Year only, what year is the first rail passenger riding? Oh, for here? Yeah, for only the year. No explanation. <laughs> member what of the, do I think? Yeah. Not, a, not an official member of the public. Yeah. Right. Buys a ticket, gets on, rides to work. What year? Well, it depends on how you define work. <laughs> what year is the first? Oh, these lawyers. All right, I fine. Know, I listener, know. <laughs> your viewer questions. <laughs> we got listener <laughs> questions. All right, all right. Listener questions. Probably 2025. 2025. But all not... You heard it here we first, folks. We define work. <laughs> you have to define work. Because I'm not saying it goes all the way to Ala Moana. That's true. But Somewhere true. where they are gainfully employed. Yeah. Oh, I think 2025. All right. Oh. So listener questions. Uh, Joanna from uh, Eva Beach wants to know, what do you think the three biggest issues facing Hawaii residents are? The three biggest issues facing Hawaii residents is, the first one is, is my definition of sustainability, which is contrary to what most people think. It is a place for your kids to be. The first issue is, will your kids or your grandkids have a place in Hawaii? That's the most important and the first issue I feel that's facing Hawaii. Tied to that is gonna be, will they have a place to live? It's, it's really a home. And of course, maybe before that, is will we be able to create job opportunities for them to want to stay in Hawaii or choose to live in Hawaii. So it's really centered around the next generation and how is it that we begin to address the issues that face us, that challenge us, that we have been um, basically able to ignore and just sweep under the rug because we're Hawaii. Living Wage Hawaii wants to know, do you support increasing the minimum wage to a livable wage in order to secure a future where all Hawaii workers can afford their basic needs? You know, you should go look at some of my old legislation that I introduced, and that's exactly what I believe in. I, as we were raising minimum wages, I, I always thought that we needed to be a livable wage. And in Hawaii, that wage is, is uh, well, back when I was introducing it, we weren't even at $7 an hour, and I was saying it had to be 11 something. So, you know, it's, it's really is, uh, of course. I guess the, the quick answer is of course, but I have the history of, of having really believed that living wage is, is critical. Tim from DSA Honolulu and Academic Labor United both asked, would you support grad assistance unionizing in the UH system with full bargaining rights? That is an interesting question. That's almost like substitute teachers. And the, 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 I, I got to tell you, I've watched the case of, uh, and it was somebody who was at the National Labor Relations Board here uh, who did the Northwestern, I think it was Northwestern University. Remember the football players? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tried to organize. The question is in the definition of an employee. The part-time status of grad assistance uh, and the fact that it is, it is a part-time versus a full-time uh, leads me to wonder whether they fulfill the definition of that. And also the fact that grad assistants are more seasonal, and seasonal workers have a different set of laws that, uh, that apply to them. If they can fit into one of the different categories, then by all means, they should try. And, and uh, it will be at the university system, it would probably be 
because they're employees of the state, it would be the Hawaii Labor Relations Board as to whether or not they would be able to organize. There is another thing that's going on that, that everyone should be aware of, and that is the fact that the United States Supreme Court by June will probably decide the case of Janice versus Ashmi. Mm -hmm. I think at that time, they should re-engage this conversation because they may actually be a welcome group <laughs> of people who people would want to want them to yeah. become members. Right now, membership has been guarded, but with Janice versus Ashmi and the way I think it's going to come down, then the definition of who will be a member of a union and who will have those rights will probably change. Multiple listeners also asked some variation of this question, but uh, high4can.org had the most um, the most detail. When is Hawaii going to realize and actualize the value of regulated adult use cannabis as a means to fund Hawaii's unfunded liabilities? You know, I have taken a position on this, and my position has been that I believe that uh, we probably will eventually follow suit. And as you know, this is going to be a decision of the of the legislature as to whether it's permitted or not. However, for those who advocate for it, if I can give them a, a free advice, they don't have to take it. I'm sure they love any free <laughs> advice. <laughs> the way to to bring this 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 whole issue up will be to first address health and safety. In other words, be on the forefront of saying if this were to happen, right, we must have levels or definitions of what is impairment. You can even use the word intoxication, how you would test for that. Because once that is done and people can feel assured that, okay, I won't have somebody stoned, quote unquote, stoned, driving next to me and then sideswiping me. If people can feel that, then you can move this conversation ahead. I think eventually it's going to happen. And, but it is a matter of, of a public relations effort now to see it happen. And the sooner these fundamental questions are addressed and how you bring it to the legislature and get that law changed, it's gonna depend on when the public feels confident that they have thought about this all the way through. Not simply just saying, okay, we're gonna legalize it. That's not gonna do it because it's like alcohol. You, you wanna equate it almost to alcohol, a legal situation, but you gotta, you gotta anticipate what the people are th worried about. This is another one we saw from multiple folks, uh, especially with uh, the Gaza Strip and Israel-Palestine back in the news again. So last fall, uh, you took some heat at a Kaimuki High School town hall, mm -hmm. go Bulldogs, uh, over your co-sponsorship of HR 1679, which is the Israel Anti-Boycott Act, right. anti-BDS legislation, uh, BDS referring to boycott, divestment, and sanctions yes. against the Israeli occupation. According to Civil Beat, your chief of staff said you were reconsidering your position. Where are you today? No, I, I was not necessarily reconsidering the position. There were potential amendments going through on that particular bill. And let me tell you what's the most critical part of it, in my opinion. The most critical part of it is the recognition, and by the way, this also has an implications for the Janus case. It's the implication of commercial speech versus individual speech. So the whole BDS issue has already been litigated, and there is case law that says that the quote, the BDS situation is not a First Amendment violation in terms of an individual because it is commercial speech. What the recent efforts, and that's what I was looking at, is whether or not the, the movement was going to be so that it was going to attack to the individual's right to speak. 
I do not believe any situation should prohibit an individual's right to speech, but I do believe that we have established law that commercial speech is different and commercial speech can be regulated. I also feel that in this particular situation, when we had the legislation passed, and this is not new legislation, it's, it's, uh, it's legislation that's been in place, I happen to support it. And I tell people, I can't get out of my mind the success of SodaStream. If, if people may not realize this, but SodaStream is a creation of a Jewish company, an Israeli company, that went into the West Bank and actually created job opportunities for the Palestinians. The res unfortunate result was because of BDS, all of that has gotten to shut down now. And that to me is not right. That is not right. It is up to the people to feel whether you want to or you don't want to buy a product or not buy a product, you can, you can do that. But it is not a situation where you use that commercial power to say that, you know, basically what, what the, the issue was is that you have to be able to not protect that speech. You can, that is speech that should not be dealt with. In other words, the right to say you can't do this mm -hmm. or you can't say these things in a commercial context is proven to be, if Congress wants to do it, which Congress has done it, that's within the legal rights. Individuals, however, are different. Essentially, if you're speaking out uh, in your own person versus if you're speaking out as part of a company right. doing business, hoping to gain some profit. Right. Okay. Right. Because what, what, the, what the whole BDS issue is, is, is to say you can't buy a product because it's, it's made in Israel or somehow it's, it's being supported. Yeah. Or in the, the occupied territory. Right. Or the, right. But like I said, you know, SodaStream to me is, is an amazing uh, example of what you can, what is successful. And the people who benefited from SodaStream were the Palestinians. Well, Congresswoman Colleen Hanabusa, uh, thank you very much. Incredibly, incredibly honored to get to sit down with you. Thank you both. Thank you so much. All right. Blue Hawaii Podcast. Blue Hawaii. Thanks for listening. Blue Hawaii. This special interview with Congresswoman Colleen Hanabusa is brought to you in part by Royal Thai Garden, home of the Hot Noodle Challenge. The Hot Noodle Challenge. Come watch us, two white guys with an average tolerance for spice. Eat the hottest noodles known to mankind at Royal Thai Garden. In Thai, howlies are called farong. And if this is farong, I don't want to be for right. Royal Thai Garden, Eva Beach. 96706. So uh, a tradition we have uh, in our fledgling podcast here is we like to ask our guests for their restaurant recommendations, whether it's somebody from out of town or somebody you know going for an old favorite. So if you had a visitor coming into, let's say, let's start with Oahu and we can branch out. Mm -hmm. And they had one dinner only and you had to tell them, okay, you only have one place to eat. You have an average person's budget. Where do you go? Oh, I think if it's average person budget, one place to eat, I would tell them to go to Nico's. Mm, mm. That's a solid Nico's yep. Pure 38. Right. Yeah, love that place. Okay. What if you had an above average person's budget? Oh. If you're looking for something nice. Yeah. If you're looking for, for something nice, I've always been a fan of uh, Alan Wong's. Mm. I just think that he cooks very well. Phenomenal. And, 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 I've, and you know, he trained at a, this is before all your times, but a restaurant in New York called Lutes that mm -hmm. was just 
that was considered the best restaurant in the United States. So I always think that for the amount of time he had to spend living in New York, the least I can do is plug him. <laughs> <laughs> what do you get at Nico's? I actually, we go at various times. Mm-hmm. So I, I will tell you unequivocally, Nico has the best fried rice in the morning for breakfast. Oh. Absolutely the best. Strong words. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Best fried rice. And you, what do you get at Alan Wong's? What do I get at? You know, I try to be. Because um, menu changes a lot. Yeah. Right. And I try to be an absolute carnivore, so <laughs> I like I like the fact, though everyone laughs at me because sometimes it's not tender. I go for the local grown meat because I just oh. want to promote the local economy. So, you know, it's whether it's cows from Parker Ranch or wherever they, he gets them from, because as you know, Merriman and he they all have these favorite places, but he always brings in. Um, the uh, the quote uh, the local beef and that's what I try to eat even uh, if sometimes it's a little tougher than <laughs> aged ribeye but I was I was afraid when you said uh, it's a little it's not tender and everybody's gonna laugh at me I thought we were talking about well done steaks with ketchup like Donald Trump <laughs> <laughs> Colleen Hanabusa devouring not just political opponents but also uh, beautiful wonderful steaks uh, locally local grown in Hawaii by local that's right. right. Eat it rare. It is soft. (laughs) That's awesome. Looking at you, Donald.